Gregory Warner here to tell you about NPR's new international podcast. It's called Rough Translation. Each week, we're going to take you to a different country to hear a story that reflects back on something that we are talking about here in the United States. Maybe get a perspective shift. Travel with us. Rough Translation is on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, before we start, how's about you go and review us in iTunes? Seriously, just go to iTunes and tell us what you think. It really helps other very attractive listeners, such as yourself, find the show. Thanks so much. Now, let's start the show. Chioki Ianson is not one of those easy A professors. I don't know that anybody up in here would say that about me. <laughs> I'd yeah. maybe get a C minus in your classes. That seems accurate, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you seem like a C-minus kind of cat, is all I'm saying. Now, in my defense, I'm more like a C-plus kind of gal, you know? Anyway, Chioki is a philosophy professor at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, where he teaches a class using great black oratory from the past. The basic idea is that there are a lot of lessons from the Africana tradition that if you took them and thought them through, they would alter or change the way that you communicate, right? And so we're trying to take some of the, just some lessons from Africana rhetoric, right? Like Frederick Douglass or Audre Lorde. And we're trying to think them through in the domain of podcasting. After studying the rhetorical styles of people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King Jr., students will make podcasts using that great oratory as inspiration, which seemed like a great idea on paper. And then I thought, oh, right, we're also going to have to teach them how to use a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) And then also we're going to have to teach them how to use some editing software. And then also we're going to have to teach them how to, like, publicly upload it and put the RSS feed in iTunes (laughs) and the whole thing. So, you know, it, it became a full spectrum class. A class he calls Podcasting While Black. I'm Lauren Ober, and from WAMU and NPR, this is The Big Listen, the broadcast about podcasts. Each week on The Big Listen, we introduce you to podcasts that you might not have ever heard of, and then we give you the inside scoop on shows you already love. Now, it's appropriate that we visited Chioki's class on Africana rhetoric and podcasts during February, which happens to be Black History Month. His students are learning about great black orators as well as great black podcasters. There's some real excitement about two dope queens at the, uh, <laughs> at the outset of the class. We'll put it like that. So you're going to have to listen to like what? Like 15, 20? Yeah, like 15. 15. Like dra- drafts from people who like, who've never picked up a microphone before. <laughs> 15 beginner podcasts. I'm sure they're all going to be great. They're going to be so fantastic. Lucky for us, we came to Chioki's class on the exact day his students were pitching their podcast projects. So we'll hear more from his students in a bit about their podcast hopes and dreams. But first, we're going to hear from another podcast newbie, Lorenz Tate. You might recall Tate from his various roles in movies like Menace to Society and Crash, where he did not play very nice guys. Give me the key! Come on, hurry up! Okay, okay. While Tate has played his share of criminals on the big screen, his latest role is a bit of a departure from that. He's throwing it back to the days of the scripted radio drama. Hey there, Jimmy Tillman. Nice to meet you. 
Lisa, who is this joke? <laughs> this is Jimmy, Frank. He told you. Hi, honey, I was starting to worry. Girls, this is my beau, Jimmy, the boxer. Hello, ladies. Tate stars in the new Hello. fictional audio series, Bronzeville. It's about the lives of Chicago's underground lottery players during the 1940s. The show's name is taken from the city's south side neighborhood, Bronzeville. This self-sustained enclave was also called Black Metropolis. A few steps away from the intersection is the largest Negro-owned department store in America, attempting to challenge the older and more experienced white retail establishments across the street. At an exclusive eat shop, just off the boulevard, you may find a Negro congressman or ex-congressman dining at your elbow or former heavyweight champion Jack Johnson. Ray pushed back on his head, chuckling at the next tape. Lorenz Tate of the new series, Bronzeville. Welcome to The Big Listen. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to chat with you because this show is fantastic, and I think it's it's really treading in new territory. But first off, why don't you tell me about Bronzeville, the place? Because I'm guessing a lot of people don't know um, that it was a real place on the south side of Chicago. What's the story with of it? Of course. Well, people don't know about Bronzeville. Okay, well, okay, I'll, maybe I'll break some it down. people. I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't kidding. know about it. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did I. Mm. But I can say that uh, Bronzeville. I'm originally from Chicago. I had heard about Bronzeville, but I didn't know the true history behind Bronzeville. And Bronzeville is a community on the south side of Chicago. It's still there, but it's a little different than it was back then. Um, During the 1940s, um, Bronzeville was a sort of a metropolis, uh, a place where um, African-Americans sort of had their own community. It was Mm -hmm. a self-sufficient community, much like other immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. It was a, at a time where you would assume that African-Americans did not sort of, uh, uh, the idea of the American dream was unattainable, given the fact that we're dealing with, you know, the Jim Crow, the racial issues that sort of defined uh, the, t- the time. Mm-hmm. But in this community, the, the people didn't allow that to define them in having a piece of the American pie. Bronzeville's people have never let poverty, disease, and discrimination get them down. The vigor with which they enjoy life seems to belie the gloomy observations of the statisticians and civic leaders who know the facts about the black ghetto. In the lean years as well as the fat, Bronzeville has shared the general American interest in having a good time. It's people like the movies and shows, athletic events, dancing, card playing, and all the other recreational activities, commercial and non-commercial, which Midwest metropolises offer. For the people of Bronzeville, having a good time also serves another function, escape from the tensions of contact with the white people. The economic engine that kept them sustained was running numbers. Mm -hmm. It was called the policy. Mm -hmm. And the people who ran this policy were true pillars of the community. Mm -hmm. And over a period of time, it was taken over by other communities, this sort of racketeering. (laughs) Yeah. And ultimately taken over by the, the state government. And it became what is now the Illinois State Lottery. Right. Isn't that crazy that like that this underground lottery that started in sort of marginalized communities, but that then it became um, legitimized once the state took it over, but it was ostensibly illegal before then. These policy kings, these people who ran these were honestly 
very well off. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're at a time where you think you know, 50 million or 100 million for these various people. That's a lot of money back <laughs> in the 20s and the 30s. And the 40s. It's a lot of money now. Yeah, I'll mean, take they that would, money. They would be what, they would be what you, modern day billionaires, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, it, you know, just like they sort of legalize uh, alcohol, you know, the, the, the government took that over and legalized mm-hmm. it. The same mm-hmm. thing with this sort of uh, numbers running. But yeah. what we wanted to do was focus on what that life was, was like. Yeah. And so the story of Brownsville really kind of focuses on a guy who comes from the South, Great Migration. That's your character, Jimmy Tillman. I play Jimmy. How long you been here, boy? Well, I just got off the train. What? <laughs> no kidding. Man, that's perfect. That's great. Welcome to Bronzeville, my brother. Now, what numbers you want? I truly ain't got no idea what you're talking about. Casper. My name's Casper. I'm talking about numbers. I'm talking about the policy wheel, country. Name's not country. It's Jimmy. And we got numbers down in Arkansas. What makes you think I'm looking to throw my money away on that foolishness? <laughs> that foolishness makes everything go around here, boy. Uh, Jimmy uh, has always heard about this metropolis. He's always heard about this. So once he gets there... Um, he then is introduced to uh, sort of the, the families that actually run this this world, this racketeering. Mm-hmm. And what we do is kind of center and tell the story of, of you know, uh, a guy who's much uh, who's a retired policy king who's played by Lawrence Fishburne. Mm-hmm. He's what would be um, the video Corleone of, <laughs> of, of the world. Curtis Randolph, Mr. Mayor. Thank you, Effie. Curtis, how you doing? Mr. Mayor, Commissioner. What brings you by this warm summer day, Curtis? I'm sure you can guess, Mr. Mayor. Well, if he can't, I can. This is about the raids. There's been ten different raids in Bronzeville the past two weeks. Now, I know appearances must be maintained, but it's starting to hurt my people. The Commissioner and I will discuss ways to perhaps reduce the number of raids until this situation blows over. That would be a nice start. Well... It's about all I can do, Curtis. Come now, Mr. Mayor. It's not all you can do. Excuse me? If the services I am paying for are being curtailed, so are my payments. That's the way I've always done business. Hey, now. No, Joe. Hear him out. He's not entirely wrong. All due respect, Mr. Mayor, I am not wrong at all. My payments to City Hall are made with the understanding that, among other things, my businesses will not be molested. I am not receiving that service at the moment. Well, it does seem that if the people of Bronzeville aren't getting the service they're used to, we might see our way to reduce the cost of that service they do get until such time as the situation can return to normal. That would at least send a small message. I'll discuss it with the Commissioner, Curtis, and we'll get back to you with that figure. But But it's an interesting thing because we tell the story all through audio, right? So it's really like the theater of the mind. Yeah. So you have one scene um, where your character is on the train and he isn't allowed to dine with his white travel companion um, and he gets pulled into the kitchen and there's a black cook in there and they kind of have words. Fool. What the hell is wrong with you? So I just want some dinner. I'll take care of you. But you don't sit out there with the white folks. Thought that was over. Boy, that ain't never gonna be over. But the Mitchell decision... The what? What was that? That Negro congressman? Supreme Court decision said... I don't see no Supreme Court here, boy. Look at me. You think I care where you sit? It ain't up to me. 
And when this train is running, it ain't up to the Supreme Court, neither. You gotta learn to choose your battles. Oh, yeah? That's how you got this sweet, sweet job, choosing your battles? Tell me, old man, did you ever win any of them? Boy, you got some brass on you. And I'm gonna tell myself you know better, and you just taking out your anger on whoever happens to be in front of you. Because if I believe you thought that way, I tell you you can wait to eat till you get to Chicago. And it's interesting because that friction of like young and old, I can see it now. There are parallels between what we're talking about with the Black Lives Matter movement and then the civil rights movement and how they're going about, you know, trying to achieve, um, you know, this this racial equality. And I don't know. I just I love that there were these little uh, moments peppered into the show that seems so relevant to what we're talking about now. It's interesting that you you point out that how relevant it is today. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're talking about 1930s and 1940s mm-hmm. and we're still dealing with some of the the things that we thought we would have, you know, either rectified right. or uh, we would have been able to find some real answers. Mm-hmm. And um it's, it's still there and it was one of those things that we wanted to do. We were able to um, hire an incredible writer, Josh Olson, who mm-hmm. um, is an Academy Award-nominated writer who wrote for the movie uh, History of Violence. Yeah, but we should note, and I found this interesting, that the writer is white, and the Correct. story is very much a black story. And was there any worry that he would be able to get... You know, the vibe right, the vernacular right, the just the idea, um, the ideas behind this right, because he's he's a white guy and he doesn't share your experience. Josh was just the best person. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the, the, the only choice or the first choice, but he was the best choice. Right. Mm-hmm. We were able to give him a lot of um, information and to equip him with the things that he needed. Mm -hmm. And because we had a very collective relationship in this step by step, we felt very confident and all the nuances we were able to um, make sure that um, were were spot on and Mm -hmm. dead on. So that was uh, really important to us. Um, Again, this is about the American dream in a real way. And the fact that uh, myself and Fishburne and our team, you know, we did a lot of research. We did a lot of, you know, studying on this stuff that we felt very confident that it didn't matter who actually penned the script. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, when it comes to life, it would all have the the right nuances. Right, right. Um, you were able to get some pretty big names. Lawrence Fishburne, who is, you mm-hmm. know, this lion of stage and screen. So it's amazing that he's on board. And then Tika Sumter, Tracy Ellis Ross of Blackish. What do you think the appeal was for those folks um, to, to get on board with this project? Well, listen, I, I got to say that uh, we do have an all-star cast and we were able to, we, we call so many people and there were very few, if not at all, I don't think there was anyone who turned it down. Yeah. We called everyone, but it was all about timing and schedule. Sure, sure. The thing that really got them was the fact that we're telling a story about the African-American experience that was sort of forgotten. Mm-hmm. A time where there was a set of, set of core values, mm-hmm. the things that we 
were stable. We were independent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that alone just was people marveled at the idea that black folk actually had this. And, you know, you don't get a chance to shine a light or cast a light on this. So, so many people jumped on it immediately. Sure, sure. Well, it's like um, if you look at the Oscars this year and that a movie like Hidden Figures, which is all about success, um, it yes. isn't about slavery. It's about drive and achievement. And, uh, and I think that's why it caught fire, I think. Yes, because it had a universal theme to it, it had a universal story to it. And... It just so happened that these women were African-American. Yeah. And how many of those stories, how many of those little nuggets that are just real treasures like a Bronzeville that we don't talk about yeah. and we don't explore? And there's yeah. so much to it. You know, you know, black folks aren't complaining yeah. <laughs> in Bronzeville. <laughs> we ain't complaining. You know, we, we're getting along. Everything, we're good. <laughs> Tate is one of the stars and producers of the new audio drama, Bronzeville. To find out more about the show, check out BigListen.org. Now, remember our pal Chioki Ayansen from the top of the show? He's a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Go Rams! I like animals with horns, and so I am at VCU. If Chioki sounds familiar to you, that's because he's the new voice of NPR's underwriting credits in newscasts and podcasts. And he's trying to bring his love of audio to his students. He's teaching a class this semester called Podcasting While Black. And our bad, we kind of made him late for class. So, sorry kids. Your oh class yeah, class is... starts right now, by Let's the way. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go to your class. Let's go to class. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> To pass the class, students have to create their own podcasts that are somehow related to the African-American experience. Thank you. And today is pitch day. Please. Just let me go before I throw up. I okay. Oh, okay. Obviously, there are a few nerves in class today. I need it to be my turn. <laughs> All right, so my name is Raina Smith. And my, for my podcast pitch, I want to title it Tea Time in the Shade. Okay, I should probably just jump in right now and explain that tea is like gossip. So, like, what's the tea is like, what's the gossip? And shade is like a slight diss. So you don't want anyone to, like, throw shade on you. So if you didn't already know, now you do. Okay, carry on, Reyna. And so I was inspired to do it after I found myself having conversations about, like, sex, politics, money, like, by myself or, like, in near hiding because... Like, I'm scared, you know what I mean? It's like, I want to talk about it without having to say the dominant discourse in the United States. Like, no, I want you to tell me how shit is up. Like, like casual conversations. The students pitched other podcasts on mental health in the black community, black nerds or blurds, and Richmond's particular history of slavery, which was L.G. Parker's idea. So, yeah, I decided to call it Revision, the podcast. And in one sentence, it's just um, uncovering the histories of the slave market in Richmond's most quotidian and exciting spots as selected by locals. So each episode is going to, like, feature a local person, and we're going to base the episode on that location they choose. Drafting pitches is only part of Chioki's podcasting while black class. By the end of the semester, all of these ideas will need to get made. We'll check in with the class a little later in the show. We will also hear from comedian Marina Franklin about how stand-up comedy has changed in the wake of a Trump presidency. 
First, we're going to take a little walking tour of historic Black Baltimore with a host of the show, Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City. This is a fancy house, huh? A lot of the houses on this block are really fancy and all predominantly black owned. Um, it looks like a castle. It's got these fancy gold gilt, whatever. I mean, I don't even know what it is, but I want to live here. Yeah. That's coming up after a quick break here on The Big Listen. Stick around. This is NPR. Hey, pals. Did you know The Big Listen has a newsletter? Well, we do. And it's pretty fun, if I do say so myself. So just go to biglisten.org and hit the button under my face that reads, Get the Newsletter. Then you'll get the newsletter. Cool. Hey, my name's A-Rad. That's A-R-A-D. I'm calling from right in your backyard, which is Washington, D.C. So born and raised, man. Um, this podcast I listen to is um, the Positive Head You can hear me discussing topics such as my favorite thought-provoking quotes, reading and discussing wisdom from empowering books, sharing a bit of mysterious news, and essentially digging into any other mind-expansive topics that will help keep your soul fed by tuning you into positive vibrations on a consistent basis. The unique thing about this podcast is that he does it five days a week. On Wednesday, he does um, amazing interviews with um, other um, positive thinkers and the people trying to change the world. He's a really, really positive guy. Thank you and have a blessed day. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I would like you to give me a call on your telephone to tell me what you're listening to. The number for the pod line is 202-885-POD1. So give us a ring. confronting the police, yelling at them over this arrest. So if you remember, in April 2015, the city of Baltimore erupted in protest following the death of Freddie Gray after his arrest by city police. The riots that followed lasted for almost two weeks. Tensions are really rising on the street tonight. But anyone who has ever been to Charm City knows that those riots are only a small part of Baltimore's storied history. On April 27, 2015, about an hour after Freddie Gray's funeral, police in riot gear faced off against children from several nearby schools surrounding the mall. And by nightfall, looters stormed the mall and pockets of chaos had erupted for miles around. But Mondawmin can't be defined by a single day. Stasia Brown is the host of the podcast Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City. On the show, she tells some of the stories of Baltimore's forgotten past. Opened in 1956, it's considered the oldest enclosed mall in the country. And for the most part, with a few store exceptions, it was integrated. This was six years before the Civil Rights Act was signed into law. A black man, Mr. Willie Adams, once owned a significant amount of real estate housed inside it. Hey, Stasia, how are you? No, I'm just late. I wanted to reacquaint myself with Baltimore, particularly the city's historic African-American neighborhoods. So I asked Asia if she'd give me a little walking tour. And she kindly obliged, even though it was crazy windy out. 
So wait, where are we right now? This is Madison Avenue, and Madison Avenue is part of the Reservoir Hill community. Um, Reservoir Hill is a historic community. It's part of the U.S. Register of Historic Places, added in 2004. But Druid Hill Park is right at the end of this block, so... Um, we did do an episode on that. The thing that um, really interested me was the desegregation of the tennis courts mm -hmm. at the park. So they had a colored swimming pool. We knew that that was the more reported history. And then when we did a little bit more digging, we found out about the tennis courts, which were desegregated much earlier than the pool was, oddly enough. This is the four of the women that played tennis that day. That's me. <laughs> we visited Mitzi Swan in her retirement home in Towson. Miss Swan, then known by her maiden name, Freistadt, played tennis at Western High School and during college at University of Maryland. But in 1948, at the age of 18, she wasn't as interested in competitive play as fair play. We had a couple, an interracial couple, that used to play tennis on the tennis courts. And sometimes they would go on the black courts, and they said that it was in terrible condition. There were roots and everything. It was just horrible to play. And then when they would come to the white courts, they were kicked out. The uh, park police were called, and they were kicked out. So a lot of us played tennis. I lived right across the street from Drew Hill Park at the time. So we decided that this would make a, a statement, you know, to open up the courts. Why should it have discrimination? The Young Progressives partnered with the city's black tennis club, the Baltimore Tennis Club, to organize their symbolic action, and they wanted an audience. So as soon as the four men went on the courts and picked up a racket and played, they were told, you cannot play, you have to leave the courts. And they refused, and they were dragged off the courts. And then when the four of us, four women, picked up our rackets to play, same thing happened. Except we didn't get you know, carried off the courts, we walked. Well, anyway, as soon as we were erupted, the crowd roared. There were over 500 people there. And the crowd just roared you know, in protest. And then it was just instantaneous, and I have no idea how it happened. But one person starts singing America. And the whole group were singing My Country Tis of the Sweet Land of Liberty. And then the, the, anybody who was really protesting this were also arrested. The park police were so dumb, they had no idea what we were singing. Was, they just said, well, it was some kind of hymn or something. Had no idea. So anyway, we had to go to court. It's crazy to me because it isn't something that I had heard about before, but it, and it's so small, but so emblematic of of what was happening that like just this small recreational area like could draw so much attention um, and really move the needle for people. Yeah, it's um, really interesting in, in the context of the community too because this street that we're on Madison Avenue is this was a Jewish historically Jewish um, street a lot of Baltimore is segregated or was segregated along Jewish and black lines and the participants in that action were Jewish and black so um, we had sort of alliances with them even though our neighborhoods were segregated and um, everybody the park was a communal space for everybody we were all allowed there but um, there were places that black people were not as welcome <laughs> so there was that and but it, but that like 
it was a respite for people. The park was this place where people could could go. But also, I love that there was like a cruising spot, like a car mm-hmm. cruise, and it still happens today. It does, yeah. And particularly in the summer, probably not as much right now, but certainly people get out of their cars, they park along this um, sort of curved strip, and they they pose i guess like sometimes they play music really loud you know sometimes they're just posed you know posted up outside their cars flirting with people who are passing by (laughs) observing each other's cars that's a big thing so they aren't like model cars or anything they're just the cars that people drive every day it's like a toyota corolla or something but very clean very clean with rims Yeah, on Sunday afternoons, the tradition in Druid Hill is that young African-Americans come here and they line their cars on both sides of the road along the reservoir, and then people drive slowly through. And for me, I call it preening, that people look at, they're looking, checking each other out, everybody's kind of dressed up. And I've read, when I researched the book that I wrote, was that when the when the, there were carriages in the park, the same exact thing happened on Sunday afternoons. They, were, they would drive very slowly around the carriage roads and check each other out. So I, just, I love that analogy that it's happened. It happened then, it's happening still. These homes are more like the ones on the left side of the street on Madison. So they're like this on both sides, Victorian, early era, um, all row homes and all connected. Very, very beautiful inside. So we did an interview for our bonus episode with a lady who lives on this street, on that side of the street. Mm-hmm. Um, right, the one about um, clothing in Baltimore. Yeah. And, okay, I loved that episode because I love that there is a whole troop of women who were in fashion shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all African-American women, like, modeling clothes designed by an African-American woman. And it was it was like this whole industry she had. She took us out to fashion shows where we looked like the people in the audience. Our favorite models were the one were Melanie Urell, who was a size 14, and gray-haired, and Tenya Wiggins, who was a size 22 and a half. She was my height, and she was 22 and a half. But she was feisty, and she wore everything we wore. If we had a bathing suit scene, Tenya was in a bathing suit scene. If we were doing cutoffs, she was in cutoffs. And she pulled it off well, and that's why people came to our shows, because they knew that they could find the clothes that would look good on them because they could see themselves up on the runway. Oh, this is a nice, this is a fancy house, huh? A lot of the houses on this block are really fancy and all predominantly black owned. Um, This is, it looks like a castle. Mm -hmm. It's got these fancy guild, whatever. I mean, I don't even know what it is, but I want to live here. Yeah. This is is part of the historical district and Mm -hmm. there is a tax incentive for moving back into this community. Um, It again used to be a Jewish street and during the 80s and 90s, like a lot of Baltimore city, infested with drugs, um, a lot of decline, a lot of closing of commercial districts, and a lot of residential flight. 
also in order to incentivize people moving back here and to renovate these spaces there's a ton of tax breaks that you can get in the city currently i don't know how long that's going to last but hopefully it continues to last <laughs> and as you can see there aren't very many for sale signs here anymore and do you see that happening um, more and more in the african-american community in baltimore that there is that redevelopment or that that uh, you know that there's a spurring of of growth I think it depends on the community and I'd like to see more of it. I do see some, um, but this is an example of something that really seems to be taking off. I think it's just because it's, it's unfortunately, it's probably more because it's a historic district. It's, it's got the national designation of being historic. And because of that, there's more um, of an incentive to do a lot of more redeveloping of it and beautifying it. Um, then there would be in a, in a place that doesn't have that distinction. But yeah, I don't see that happening like citywide on an equal level, right? but it would be nice if more of it did happen. Stasia Brown is the host of Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City. The second season comes out soon, so check that out. To get more info about the show, head on over to biglisten.org. It's time for another quick break, but when we come back, comedian Marina Franklin on the challenge of not being black enough for casting directors. You know, my black voice, I guess, is not that great. And so you kind of, you know, you go into your head a little bit about it being a black voice. Right. And then it becomes this weird black voice. That's coming up in a GIF here on The Big Listen. Stay with us. This is NPR. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Lauren. My name is Christina Nelson. I'm a foreign language teacher in Brandon, Mississippi. I try to listen to podcasts that I can learn from and share with my students. Uh, You shared gravy on one episode, and I loved it. We listened to an episode on the history of corn one week in class. Alt-Latino on NPR keeps me updated on new rock and Spanish and and Latin alternative music releases. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. You know, every February has been set aside here in the U.S. as Black History Month, and it's a special time to recognize the contributions to the great story of our country. And this month here on Alt Latino, we're going to do our part, just as we do all year long, to put a spotlight on Afro-Latino culture and music and its contribution to our collective musical identity. Hopefully someone else finds my list useful. As a teacher, it would make my day. Adios. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and do you know a podcast out there that needs some love? Well, call me on the pod line and tell me about it. The number is 202-885-POD1. We would be happy to give your favorite show some love. Now, normally, this would be the part of the show called Listen Up, where we grill super cool people about what podcasts they are putting their ears on. But I was so engrossed in my conversation with our next guest that I actually forgot to ask her what shows she was listening to. Comedian Marina Franklin just had so much good stuff to say about all kinds of topics, impersonating her family, the state of comedy in a post-Obama world, and the reality of not being black enough for casting directors. 
We also talked to her about her podcast, Friends Like Us, which features smart women of color talking about a variety of hot topics. Recently, they've tackled gentrification, fake news, and Islamophobia with comedian Zainab Johnson. It's also what you, when I think of Zainab and her energy and the way you walk into a room, Mm -hmm. I mean, when you walk into a room, I know you're there. Mm -hmm. Only thing I hated was... I didn't mind covering my hair. My okay, so with covering my hair, I had so much hair, and you know, like as a little black girl, where people don't think you have a lot of hair, it's like all I wanted them to know was I got so <laughs> much, much hair, hair under here. <laughs> I know y'all are looking at like Keisha and Danielle, and y'all thinking black girls don't got hair, but it's so much under hair here, and I can't show it. So that used to be the one thing I hated. So when he pulled it off. Marina happened to be in town recently because she was headlining a show here. So we took a little field trip to her three-star hotel to have a visit. Sorry, it smells like chicken. Oh. <laughs> it just, it, I can't do anything about it. It's it like. Could, it could be worse. Despite like the strong chicken aroma in Marina's room, we were able to get on with our chat. Thank you for your concern. So you, you are on the road how often? It's not that often. Lately, it's been more. I don't have a lot of dates, but I have more than I'm used to. So, yeah. And then, the, of course, February is busy because it's Black History Month. <laughs> So. No, stop it. No, please. It's very... You're kidding. Are you joking? It's so busy. I was like, oh, somebody needs me. <laughs> somebody needs me this month. Wait, wait, wait. So, so clubs are like, oh, it's February. It's time to book black comedians? Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I think. I'm assuming. I don't know. I'm just looking at my calendar. I was like, February's busy. <laughs> so when you were a kid, were you like a cut up with your family? A cut up. No. Oh, my God. Is that old? Am I dating myself is, there? It's just very white. Cut up. <laughs> Were you a cut up? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What would be, what would she, be like a less white thing to say? Uh, were you funny? <laughs> maybe. Or maybe, girl, you, you had them rolling. No. I always was, I was funny by imitating people in my family. My grandma yeah. Moot is a character. That's what we called her. <laughs> And that's basically her name because, you know, the argument is moot. So my grandfather nicknamed her that. Grandma moot, you know, chewed tobacco. She's she from Mississippi. That was our thing. Did you ever have to empty out her spittoon or anything? Like, what did she spit into? She sometimes didn't catch the her missed her aim. So um, there was a bathroom. Her bathroom is very memorable. Let's say the toilet seat. This is family stuff, though. See, this is stuff that we just knew, right? But we didn't really like. We, we would we would talk about it later and be like, "That's right. Yeah. What was up with the toilet seat? You couldn't sit down. <laughs> it was tobacco all over the toilet seat." She was the one who kept me really rooted in my blackness. Like she used to take me to church, like on the south side of Chicago, and the preacher would get up there and just take all day, never get to the point. Just get up there. Like he had something really good to eat before he got up there. (laughs) And he never talked about nothing. I woke up this morning. mm, Then I, I said I took a step. Mm, Then I 
took another step. Mm-hmm. My grandma, she used to heckle that preacher. You know, in addition to um, to being on the road, being a stand-up, being a writer on a show, you also are out there auditioning for roles. Oh. And you, I, one of the episodes of your show, you were talking with Michelle Buteau about... Um, about the hustle, the audition hustle. Oh, God, yes. And I wonder what that's like for you. Also, I thought it was funny because you were like, I feel like they should just be coming to me <laughs> at the moment. Like, I feel like I should have to, at some point, I'm going to stop going on these auditions. They're just going to call me up. Yeah, that's what we all want. And <laughs> I, I shared a moment with the guy on the elevator after an audition, and he was like, you know, at some point, we won't have to even do this. They'll just come to us. Right. That's what we're going for, right? right. And I was like, Yeah. Yeah. Do you find ever that when you walk into an audition, they want you to be somebody who you are not? Or you kind of touch on this in one of your, your comedy bits where, like, you know, you say you are not the sassy black comedian, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the BET style. But do you get pegged as that simply because you're a woman of color? Yeah, like I had one recently where the character was described as street. <sighs> this is actually okay, though. Yeah. Because the character is specific to a guy, a comedian that I know, whose girl, whose ex-wife was street. Mm-hmm. But she was trying to be um, more conservative. Mm-hmm. They liked the first half of my audition. Right. Where I was conservative. The right. street part, I just couldn't pull off. Really? For an audition, it's just really hard to right. pull off. I mean, because, you know, my black voice, I guess, is not that great. And so you kind of, you know, you go into your head a little bit about it being a black voice. Right. And then it becomes this weird black voice. So, like, now what I do is I don't go into my head about it being a black voice. I go into my head about how does Marina talk when she's really connected to something and she's talking to someone that is black and her blackness does naturally come out right so then it's more authentic that's interesting but you also do a killer white girl voice too well that's easier (laughs) (laughs) i can do that so much easier it's so it's sad but it's true i was like oh my god are you serious (laughs) right and like why are you so angry like where does that come from and the police are here to protect you. In one of your recent episodes of your podcast, you were talking about how certain jokes just won't land now in, in this sort of political climate. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about that, like how you've had to adjust um, your routine or adjust your approach to stand up given this climate that we're in right now. You know, everywhere is different. And I'm finding that out right now. I got off stage last night and someone said, I thought you were going to talk about politics more. Yeah. In New York City, talking about politics, for me anyway, where I've performed, has been awkward. Yeah. It's interesting, like for being a comedian, you're supposed to be able to say things that no one else can say and it should be okay, but it's not. Right. Now it's really not. Right. And that was the thing that I've noticed is in the past two weeks, or actually since the election, some of the comics since the election, their jokes 
ain't flying. Right. Mm. Ain't working. Not working. And some of the things that were recorded, like some sets, some comedian sets that were recorded before the election, like you see now, mm. it looks like, were you from the past? Wow. So what do you mean? What responsibility do you think you and, and fellow comedians, fellow artists have in this moment? A true artist takes their time with it and really expresses who they are through their art. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's not easy. It's not an easy time. And so I'm looking at some comedians who artistically are on the wrong side of history right now. Mm. Their material lands very sexist, very mm. racist, but that's what they do. Right. You know, what we're finding now is even when I'm on stage in New York City, there are people in New York City in the audience who are Trump supporters. And it's clear that when you do um, a joke where you're saying specifically right out the bat that you don't like him, the audience responds. Yeah. They talk. They say things. So it's tricky. So you have to sort of like massage them into the material. Yeah. Do you want to appeal to those people too? Or do you just not care if you lose them? I like making everyone laugh. Yeah. You know, and I think that the power of laughter is brings us together. And sometimes, even if I disagree with someone politically, the fact that they find me funny could change things. Right. Some comics do want to divide a room. Yeah. They, you know, some comics don't care about losing people, and and that's fine. I just think that there's a, I think that one of the things that I've always felt with performance is that. When I do it, there is really, even though I'm talking about race, what I'm feeling, the connection with the audience has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with being human. Comedian Marina Franklin is the host of the podcast, Friends Like Us. If you're in New York, you can catch her at the Comedy Cellar, where she performs frequently. She also told us that she's going to be performing at the Mall of America. So hit up biglisten.org. It's got all the details. We've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Ooh, boo-hoo, no. But... Before we let you go, it's time for Chartography. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the iTunes charts. But we are not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289, which in a veritable avalanche of podcasts is a pretty great ranking. Okay, so this week's 289 is called The Secret to Success with CJ and Eric Thomas. Well, actually, it's CJ and E.T. What's going on, y'all? Y'all feeling all right? E.T. is not extraterrestrial. (laughs) It's Eric Thomas, Ph.D., a.k.a. hip-hop preacher, which I don't exactly know what that means because I don't think he actually has any kind of um, like seminary degree or something like that. But he's a hip-hop preacher. This is a self-help podcast that apparently... Um, will help you succeed. I want to be the person that makes the connection. We're talking about your brand right now. Because Eric Thomas went from being a homeless high school dropout to a successful entrepreneur and CEO. And I guess he is going to help you unlock all of the secrets. You know, you the man, you whatever, whatever, whatever. Oh wait, he has a trademark slogan. When you want to succeed as bad as you breathe. So, like, I don't know, I mean, 
breathing is involuntary. Good point. Strong point. I didn't really feel like I got any keys um, to unlock the secret of success, but he does sell a lot of gear on his website, so if you want a sweatshirt. Pretty in pink, baby. Um, they did talk a lot about a marriage conference they went to. I literally, I had a blast. They talked about how they talked about how to have a good marriage. Yeah, so that was phenomenal, man. So if you uh, you need a little extra boost in your life, you need a little help. We're going to be successful. Um, apparently, Eric Thomas and his sidekick, CJ, will give you the secrets of their success. So check them out, I guess. Want to listen to the big listen on the go? Yes, you do. Well, you can. Just go to iTunes or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we'll be sliding into your feed every week. As always, we love us some listener feedback. So please like us on Facebook and or follow us on Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. So follow us. We're huge. And if you want to send us love notes, we won't say no. Our electronic mail address is biglisten at wamu.org. The show today was produced, mixed, and edited by Jacob Fenston and Ponzi Rutch. I, Lauren Ober, was in Richmond hanging with the coolest college professor around. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now, a final word from Virginia Commonwealth University professor Chioki Ianson about the value of teaching podcasting as a communication tool. What are you hoping that your students get out of the class when they finish, you know, when all is said and done? You ever record some 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 copy or read a script and you're like totally got this and then you play it back and you're like that doesn't make any sense (laughs) right or or you think you do have it and then you play it for people and they're like that doesn't make any sense so you see whenever you do this production stuff it turns yourself into a kind of object of study and the way that you communicate so that after a little bit of time of doing it you just become a better communicator as a matter of habit And it's not just an academic exercise. The podcast that the students make actually could take off. It doesn't take a lot of equipment. It doesn't take a lot of, you know, not even a lot of time in in some cases. And it could be good. Like, they could make it in this wild west that we call podcasting. And we will definitely be on the lookout for them. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR. Hey there. So you're still here. I can see that. I can't because it's radio, so I can't really see you. But it does appear as though you're still here. And since you're still here, you might as well go make yourself useful. Head on over to iTunes. Drop us a little review. Tell us what you think of the show. We would be ever so grateful if you did because it helps other really attractive listeners such as yourselves find the show. So please and thanks.